Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. You want to have more energy, have more imagination, and more curiosity. And it's, it's the questions you ask every day that determine where your imagination goes, how much energy and passion you have. If you think you're creative, you're gonna tend to do better on any kind of creative task. Because if you think you're creative, you will naturally look for solutions. You think I'm not creative, you don't look for solutions, and so therefore you will not find them. As Shakespeare said, you know, all the world's a stage. So what if I could learn and help other people learn how to be more poised and have more ease and grace in playing their role in life. Okay, before we jump into this interview, I want to invite you to be considered for my 2019 Traveling Mastermind. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com and fill out the application and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a great fit. This year, we'll be in Boston doing lots of cool things like training with Tom Brady's trainer, Alex Guerrero. In the middle of the year, we'll be heading to Monaco doing things like vintage car rides through the French Riviera. And then we're going to wrap the year in Florence, Italy, doing things like truffle hunting and hot air ballooning over Florence. Look, Life is all about fulfillment, and I really try and walk the walk. So if you are looking to be part of our tribe of 28 high-achieving entrepreneurs that are in the six- and seven-figure range, fill out your application at workhardplayhardmastermind.com to be considered. So think of the mastermind as having two parts. The first is the trip itself. And the second part is what goes on over the four days within the mastermind. Our group of 28 entrepreneurs will help you brainstorm and accelerate what you want to achieve in 2019. And we'll do that through a variety of different exercises, brainstorming activities, breakout sessions, goal setting sessions, you know the drill. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a fit. All right, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features Michael Gelb. You can find him on Instagram and elsewhere at Michael J. Gelb. So I wanted to have Michael on the show because he exemplifies how to lead a life of fulfillment. I mean, real fulfillment. He is the real deal. He's written a bunch of books, but my favorite is How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci. In fact, the book moved me so much that I invited him to join us in Boston to share it with my mastermind members. You can find him on the socials at Michael J. Gelb. Be sure to take a screenshot of this episode, share it on the socials, and remember to tag me and Michael J. Gelb and let us know what you thought. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation I had with Michael Gelb. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. You know what, man? I am super excited to this, and I've really been been looking forward to this. Our mutual friend, Mike Zeller, said, Rob, you got to have this guy on the show. So here we are, and I am so excited that you're here. Thank you. Mike is a really cool guy, great energy, 
super guy. Yeah, really, really cool. So I thought what we would do is we would kind of uh, do the show in three parts. First, we'll talk about the science of achievement and maybe how you help people think more creatively. And then we'll move into the art of fulfillment. And we'll talk about some things that you do to help people and yourself become more fulfilled. And then we'll wrap up with some rapid fire questions, if that's cool. Sounds good. So I think a good place to start would be Passaic, New Jersey in the (laughs) 60s. Can can you maybe paint a picture of what that world was like for you and maybe talk about a few things that you did with your parents, say, I don't know, ages 10 to 15? Wow, sure. Passaic, New Jersey. Yeah. It's funny because at the time... It certainly didn't seem the way it seems now. It now seems relatively innocent compared to what it must be like growing up anywhere in the U.S. at the moment. But, you know, we it was a classic uh, old-fashioned 50s and 60s deal where we just finished school and went out to play until we got called in for dinner. Then we're made to do our homework. Then we're allowed to watch a little TV, went to sleep, got up, went to school, rinse and repeat. <laughs> right. I mean, like those days are over, right? Like no, no kid has their mother yelling, come home now. Like you can't get the kid outside the house now. Well, the hilarious thing is my, my mom, my mom used to have a cowbell and she would ring this bell when it was time for us to come in for, for dinner. And, and That was it. You just hear, it was like Pavlov. You would hear the sound. We'd start salivating for dinner and we would, we would run home. So it, it, it's funny to me how it it now seems kind of innocent. And yet at the same time, it was, it was a very challenging time too. I was trying to explain to a friend about the nature of our, our world today and some of what we're going through. And in some ways we're dealing with an exaggeration of all of the challenges that have ever been part of American history. They're all right in our face at the moment, exaggerated and asking us to rise to the occasion. I talked to, you know, I talked to a lot of people. I was talking to a friend last night who was saying she's so depressed about what's happening in the world that she finds it hard to mobilize her resources. And she's, she's a healer. She has people come to her. They're depressed. I said, well, you know, it's a problem. If you're supposed to be the healer or the person inspiring other people, and instead of inspiring them, you're getting worn down by the unhappiness of lots of people around you, well, that's the opposite of what you're supposed to be doing. And I remember growing up and thinking that the world seemed crazy back then. You know, we 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 did have uh, racial tension. We had race riots at that time, we had the Vietnam War. We had all sorts of things that impinged on people's sense of well-being. But I remember, you know, my mom's a psychologist. And I remember having this conversation with her, and she said to me, the most powerful element is the human mind, for better or for worse. And I remember thinking, that is a profound truth. Do you think your mom having the background in psychology is what led you perhaps to getting your mat or doing your master's thesis in psychophysical reeducation? And why did you choose that? Maybe you can kind of explain high level what that is. Sure. 
Well, I think it was a combination. You know, my mom and my dad. I mean, they had a natural sense of contribution to the world. They were just. My dad was an oral surgeon, worked with people, was very compassionate. People loved him. Everybody's afraid when they go to the dentist, and he just he knew that he could reassure people, and he understood the psychology, understood the human element, as well as being technically brilliant and and scientifically thoughtful and precise. So effectively, he was a healer, even though he wouldn't have called himself that. And my mom worked at the Passaic County Mental Health Clinic dealing with all kinds of uh, suffering. Our affectionate nickname for my parents was Mental and Dental. But they they had a default setting of kindness and caring about the world, about it just was, and it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't some philosophy that they tried to expound to us. It was just their character. It was the way they were raised. It's the way my grandparents were, that kindness, charity, humanity are essential important values. So I just, you know, I kind of grew up with that. It never occurred to me to be anything outside of the framework of that. And so when I was thinking, okay, well, I studied psychology in undergraduate. I graduated in three years with, uh, actually, I finished my degree in psychology, and then I also got a degree in philosophy. I graduated with honors in three years, realizing that All of this was theoretical, and I wanted to go deeper. I wanted to understand how to integrate the understanding in practice. And that led me on a quest where I I met some of the great spiritual teachers. My mind, the way my mind tends to work, I really have a gift for finding connections and relationships and symmetries. And so I was seeing these these. what I I think are universal truths coming from every tradition. And so that was great. I was 21 years old. I studied meditation intensively. I spent time with a genius Buddhist monk. Uh, I had uh, wonderful, extraordinary experiences of awareness and so on. But then I I said, okay, what am I actually doing in the world? Because I knew I wasn't, my, my nature wasn't to go be on a mountaintop somewhere or be a monk or an ascetic. So what to do in the world? And I had very simple criteria. It had to be something that I would love to do, that I would love learning about, that I felt I could continue learning about for the rest of my life. And of course, without even question, it had to be something that would help other people. When I look back, it amazed me. I was so naive. I I didn't even really think about making money at all. I mean, I'm really glad that worked out. (laughs) Yeah. But I was just focused on goodness and learning. So while I I, I was studying the Alexander Technique, which is a method of integrating body and mind, they teach it at the Juilliard School, the Royal Academy of Music and Drama in England. It's the premier method on on the planet for developing stage presence. And I thought, what what a great thing to learn because... Life, as Shakespeare said, you know, all the world's a stage. So what if I could learn and help other people learn how to be more poised and have more ease and grace 
in playing their role in, in life. So I was training for three years as a teacher of the Alexander Technique in London, and I thought it'd be good to get some ac- academic recognition for this. So Goddard College allowed me to create my own master's degree thesis proposal, and I called it Psychophysical Reeducation, Reeducating the Mind and the Body. And so I, I wrote my master's thesis, I got my master's degree, and then that thesis was sent to a publisher, got published, got translated to 16 languages, and I became an international author and that, that was 40 years ago. Wow. Okay. So much there. How did the fascination of Leonardo da Vinci enter your life? And maybe you can uh, sort of explain a bit more about what mirror writing is. Sure. Well, my mother's mother was Italian. And she was also a painter and a fantastic cook. <laughs> and very cultured person with an interest in art, obviously, in history, in the Renaissance. And so when I was a child, she told me about Leonardo da Vinci. She told me stories about Leonardo. And I thought, that's amazing. That's the coolest guy who ever lived. So years later, I got my master's degree, completed my training as an Alexander Technique teacher. And I started a business called Self-Management. And the idea was to actually go into people's workplaces, observe them, and then give them a customized class on how they could use their energy in a more streamlined and intelligent way. And the first person who engaged me for this was a fellow who was an internationally renowned author who was also a very successful business consultant. And in the late 70s, he invited me to come to a seminar that he was teaching in Switzerland to a group of senior executives from a multinational computer company. And so I taught them the Alexander Technique. I taught them how to juggle. I I taught them the inner game of tennis, all sorts of other really cool things, as well as mind mapping and memory technique and speed reading, which I had learned from this fellow. And the head of HR for this company said, we want this young American guy in all our classes around the world. So I started, I got invited to teach all these senior executives. I was flying all over the world, leading these five-day seminars called the Mind and Body Seminar. This is in 1979, 1980, 81. It turned out that a lot of them were really interested in the creativity side of what we were teaching because they realized that innovation would be really important for their business. So I I was doing more and more classes on how to think creatively. And I remember the stories my grandmother told me about Leonardo da Vinci. So I was telling Leonardo da Vinci stories and people really liked them. And over the years, I did more and more homework about Leonardo. And at a certain point, I just thought, I should write a paper about this. So I wrote a paper about it and people really liked it. And I thought, maybe I'll write a book about it. So then I spent four years immersed in Leonardo's consciousness and the book, How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci, Seven Steps to Genius Every Day, came out 20 years ago. 
and made all the global bestseller lists and still is a rocking bestseller. Thank you. Hallelujah, Grandma. <laughs> well, you know what? You are you're one of the best people out there in teaching people creative thinking. And some people believe that they're creative and other people don't. What strategies would you give to people to help them sort of unlock that creativity if they don't think they got it? Right. Well, this, this is uh, it's a really good point because if you think you're creative, you're going to tend to do better on any kind of creative task. Because if you think you're creative, you will naturally look for solutions. If you think you're not creative, it's a fait accompli. You think I'm not creative, you don't look for solutions, and so therefore you will not find them. So mindset is a huge element in, in creativity. And if you can get people just to pretend that they're creative, their scores go up on creativity tests immediately. So <laughs> attitude does make a difference. Having said that, a lot of the people who think they're not creative are people who consider themselves a lot. I mean, I work with lots of engineers. I, I work with lots of people who are involved in an analytical orientation. And they're, they're focused on convergent thinking rather than divergent thinking. Now, creativity really requires the marriage of convergent and divergent thinking. But if you can just explain to those people that here's another modality of thinking that's appropriate for finding new ideas. And you'll discover that most of the new ideas you come up with aren't particularly useful. However, the way the mind works is the greater the quantity of new and unfamiliar ideas you generate, the greater the likelihood that your mind will play with those and combine to come up with something really new that might be a breakthrough. Well, how important is journaling in this whole process? Well, again, it's one of these things that, you know, if Leonardo da Vinci told you to do something, he said, look, you said to, hey, Leonardo, you're the greatest genius of all time. I want to develop my creativity. What should I do? Leonardo would say, take a little notebook, carry it with you wherever you go, and when you have an idea, write it down, even if it seems like a crazy idea. Now, in modern language, that's exactly what Leonardo told his students. So you might say, okay, well, Leonardo, you're the greatest genius of all time. You've got some credibility with me. But then if you went to Thomas Edison and said, said, hey, Thomas Edison, what should I do to be more creative? And Thomas Edison said, Take a little notebook, carry it with you everywhere you go, write down your ideas as they occur to you. Even if they seem crazy, just jot them down and draw lots of pictures in them. In other words, if he told you the exact same thing Leonardo told you, now it might really sink in. And then if you went to Marie Curie or Charles Darwin and they all told you the same thing, you start to say, gee, this is something that pretty much every genius throughout history has not only done but recommended to their students. You don't have to be a genius to figure out that you'll be more of a genius if you do it too. You know, as uh, Tony Robbins says, success leaves clues, right? These are not just subtle clues. These are giant signposts. <laughs> right. Hey, stupid, right? Yeah, okay, got it. How do you approach solving writer's block? There is no such thing as writer's block. Writer's block is just an excuse that people come up with to validate whatever 
not neurotic pattern they've managed to get themselves locked into. I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of teasing, but it's, if you understand how the creative process works, you'll never have writer's block. If, if you just mindlessly try to bull away and think I have to do it in the way that I do it and it has to be right and it has to be good and my first draft has to be brilliant. If you think that's what writing is, you'll never write anything. You, you will then be suffering from what I call premature organization. Writer's block is just premature organization. It is the attempt to get it right before you just get it. But when you understand one of the very simple principles of the creative process, which is generate first, organize later. Just write it down in your notebook. Just come up with lots. As Thomas Edison said, if you want to get a great idea, get a lot of ideas. Just write down lots of ideas and don't even worry about them. Go for a walk in nature. Meditate for 20 minutes. Practice your juggling. Do some Tai Chi or take a nap. Then come back and look at what you've got with an open mind and look for patterns and connections. And more often than not, you'll be surprised that you're inspired and the writing starts to flow. If it doesn't, back to the drawing board, generate lots of new associations, do some creative doodling, read a, read something, and get some input, listen to a, a, a podcast, inspire yourself, take a break, come back. So there's a process. Well, you you wrote um, the book you just mentioned, which is How to Think Like Leonardo uh, da Vinci. What are a few strategies that people come to you and they say, you know what, that book taught me how to do this, this, and this? Like, what are the most common ones that you hear? My favorite thing anybody ever said was, this book gave me everything I always wanted to teach my children, but didn't have the words to say. Mm, what a beautiful compliment. Yeah. So you know, there's seven principles for thinking like Leonardo. The first is insatiable curiosity. It's our birthright. The second is to think for yourself, cultivate independent thinking. The third is to awaken your senses, sharpen all your senses and your appreciation for beauty. The fourth is to embrace uncertainty and ambiguity and learn to cultivate intuition. The fifth is to integrate art and science, logic and imagination. The sixth is to integrate the body and the mind. And the seventh is to look for new connections and think in a system's holistic orientation. So the principles, it turns out that the principles have formed the basis of the curriculum of schools at lots of different levels all around the world. So more than any one of the particular principles, each of which is a big, intense chapter with lots of practices associated with it. I think the real power of the book is it's a systematic approach for the development of genius. Of genius. And, you know, the, the subtitle of the book is Seven Steps to Genius Every Day. Because people want, you know, in the world so complex today, we need to think like a genius in order to find fulfillment in harmony with success and self-expression and happiness. So, you know, come back to the first, people say, which is your favorite principle? Which one is most impactful? It's, it's a system. They can't really be separated. And there's a reason that they go in the order they go. And curiosity comes first because that's our birthright. 
Children are the most curious beings. They also have the most wild imagination and by far the most energy. So I, I tell my audiences, especially of older people, I say, you want to have more energy, have more imagination and more curiosity. And it's, it's the questions you ask every day that determine where your imagination goes, how much energy and passion you have. So what are the compelling questions that can transform your consciousness, awaken your perception? There's a fabulous exercise, one of, the, one, of the, one of the exercises that people have gotten the most out of in the Curiosita chapter of, chapter of uh, the Da Vinci book is called The Hundred Questions, where I invite the reader to sit down and write a hundred questions in one sitting without raising the pen off the paper and without editing in any way. And this is an amazing exercise that people do it. In the first 20 questions, it's your normal, habitual mind. It can even get a little annoying. 30, 40, 50, your arm's getting a little tired. People sometimes write, why am I writing this question? <laughs> what, what's the point of this exercise? But people keep going, and when they get to 70, 80, 90, 100, and some people are so into it, they even go beyond 100, and they start shifting out of their habitual limiting way of thinking and they enter this expansive realm that is always available to us uh, the realm of the creative and i've had people write to me you know it's now 20 years since the book came out so i've gotten lots of, i used to get letters now i get emails texts people tell me how that just that one exercise changed their life i heard from a guy uh, just uh, he sent me an email this morning about his latest venture he got the idea for his entrepreneurial, for this business that he started that is now quite successful from doing that exercise. So that there's, it's like this thin veil between our habitual, everyday consciousness and this realm that in, informs Leonardo, it informs Edison, it informs artists, it informs musicians, it informs spiritually enlightened people that is accessible to everyone we you know this is the great thing about the world today this is the age of the democratization of enlightenment if you're interested if you want to live an enlightened beautiful fulfilling life the information and the guidance is now readily available but you have to ask, ask yourself the question you know how do i navigate my day in a way that yields enlightenment and and joy and peace, because that, that's the kind of question that yields enlightenment, joy, and peace, just for example. So the 100-question assignment is more to get you out of your habitual questions. So is it writing 100 questions of just whatever questions pop up in your mind, or are there some prompts? Like, what questions do I have around work? What questions do I have around family? Or is it just all of the above? Yeah, if you want to make up a prompt, if you want to make up a prompt, that's fine. But the only real prompt is write 100 questions right now. And it could be any 100 questions. Why am I sitting here doing this podcast? That's right. Why am I sitting? Exactly. What is a podcast? <laughs> what is a pod? Why is it casted? I mean, so you just be silly, play with it, just let your... Because what happens within 20 questions, you just burn out your habitual everyday thinking. And that's every every... Methodology of creativity 
if it's creative, if it's, let's take the word innovation. The root of that word is nova, means new. If you want something new, you're going to have to get past what's old. So the, the reason 100 Questions works is that your habitual think, that's why it doesn't really matter what questions you write. I don't give people a theme. If they really want one, I'll give it to them. You know, your first question would be, how come I don't have a theme? If I did have a theme, what would it be? <laughs> the mm-hmm. idea is just the mobility of the mind, getting the mind to move outside of its habitual patterns, getting the body to move outside of its habitual patterns, getting our feelings to move outside of their habitual patterns. And, but doing this in a way that we can then integrate. That's why, you know, so, so for years, every society has had methodologies for people to go into altered states of consciousness. They, you know, drumming, uh, uh, sweat lodges, uh, uh, various uh, plant agents to shift people's consciousness. Uh, but those, those aren't always practical or safe in our world today without expert guidance. But writing 100 questions pretty much is, and it will give you a very similar effect. So when you're done with your 100 questions, are you, are you looking down at the paper, circling one or two, and you're going, okay, this is it. This is where I need to go next. Like When, when the assignment is done, other than burning out the habitual that you described, yes. what, what's, the, what's the goal? Take a break. Take a break. Go do something that shifts your brain into an even more relaxed state, into alpha or theta. Go for a walk in nature, do some tai chi, meditate, practice your juggling, take a nap. Then come back, read your 100 questions. And there's another exercise in the book where I get you to highlight the, the 10 questions that have the most energy for you in that moment. And energy means... You read it and you go, yeah. Uh, I like you. This is really fun. <laughs> okay, cool. How did, the, how did the Da Vinci book wind up in... How did your Da Vinci book wind up in the Italian job? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's, I have the, I'm here in my office. I got the picture. There's a most deaf and... Jason Statham, and they are on the canal in Venice, and they're holding up How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci, and they're both looking at it. It was I. It was featured on the screen for 22 seconds. Who's counting? And, <laughs> and the funny thing is, the first I heard of it was when I got endless emails from people saying, oh my God, your book's in the, in the Italian job, da 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 And... Somebody, so one of the producers liked the book and thought it would fit, and they just said, "Here, this is a this is a reference." So it was it wasn't a product placement. It wasn't anything like that. It just was a, some kind of lovely quirk, and they they were kind enough to send me this beautiful frame photograph of the stars of the movie reading my book. So, what did it feel like for you when you got that? We all love it when something we worked on gets recognized or appreciated or so on. And I remember once I, I, I did a, I did a seminar, you know, the Fairmont hotel in Chicago. I used to, I used to go there a lot cause I had a client right next door and I happened to be there for another client. They were having the 25th anniversary of their company and they had a thousand people 
staying at the Fairmont Hotel, and they had given them all a hardcover copy of How to Think Like Leonardo, and they invited me to give the keynote speech at their gala and sign all these books. (laughs) But what I remember was, uh, I was in the elevator, and everybody in the elevator had my book. I was down in the uh, the lounge, and everybody in the lounge had my book. And I was just thinking to myself, this is the way the world's supposed to be. <laughs> so when I saw these guys in the movie uh, with my books, yeah, of course they have my book. It's just how it's supposed to be. That's freaking amazing. That must have been so cool. So speaking of Italy, have you been to Italy to connect more with Da Vinci's work? And if yes, what stood out for you the most when you were there? Ah, so I've I've been to Italy many, many times. I went there. I literally went to the place Leonardo was born and I went to the place he died, which is actually in France. Uh, But in both places, I literally walked his footsteps. I looked directly through the, the windows of the rooms that he inhabited, tried to place my feet just where his feet were and put my consciousness in alignment with his consciousness. So, yeah, I spent lots of time in Florence, uh, in Milan, uh, in Rome, uh, on da Vinci-related journeys. And the most wonderful result of writing this book is I get invited to Italy usually a couple times a year by different companies to speak about Da Vinci in various Italian cities. So yeah, thanks to, I get actually get paid to go to Italy now. <laughs> Dude, that is so freaking incredible. Really, really incredible. I love this. So what's the difference between the Da Vinci book and the Edison book, uh, Creativity on Demands, Innovate Like Edison? Right. So how to Think Like Leonardo came out in 1998, and around 2006, 2005, maybe, I got a phone call from this woman. She said, I am Thomas Edison's great, great, great grandniece. She said, I have an MBA from Dartmouth. She said, I'm a huge fan of your book on Da Vinci. I wanted to talk to you because I was thinking of writing something about my great, great, great uncle. So I instantly had a light bulb go off in my mind, thinking, okay, well, let's do it together. And sure enough, we did. We we wrote this book, Innovate Like Edison. When the book came out, I was interviewed by USA Today. And I said I thought that da Vinci might ask Edison about the nature of light. And that Edison would ask da Vinci, hey, do you want a job? (laughs) So... So Leonardo wasn't interested in business. He was interested in pure truth, beauty, and goodness. He wanted to know the mind of God. That's it. Now, he did have his business model was to to find wealthy patrons who could sponsor his work. First, he had the Medici. Then he had the Duke of Milan. Then he had the Pope. Then he had the Medici again. And then finally, Francois I, the King of France. So he did a good job within the framework of his business model of getting sponsorship and patronage for what he wanted to do, which was investigate truth, beauty, and goodness. Thomas Edison was also 
profoundly interested in truth, beauty, and goodness, but he wanted to translate his insights into truth, beauty, and goodness into sustainable competitive advantage in the world of business. But only in a way, he only wanted to invent things that would help humanity. And he did a pretty good job. If you think about it, he illuminated the world. He invented the recording industry and the movies. And those have made a lot of people happy. But for Edison, the main focus was take creativity, take imagination, take all these virtues and apply them to create something that you can sell for a profit and that people will love and want to keep buying because you've done a a brilliant job of that. So they're very complimentary. Leonardo, supreme role model for pure creativity and the fulfillment of all our potential. Thomas Edison, highest role model ever if you're interested in invention, innovation, and business success. All right, so let's move to the uh, the second part of the show, which is the art of fulfillment. And I'd like to talk about some things that maybe you do to improve areas outside of business. And I know that you have a book, I believe this is a book, it's in the world of wine, where you help people uncork their creative juices with wine tasting and po- poetry contests, etc. Can you kind of maybe paint that picture for us? Sure. I've always loved the whole culture of wine. My dad was this hardworking oral surgeon in New Jersey. And much to his eternal credit, he would, because he wanted to expand his horizons culturally, he used to take us to art museums and they'd take us to a show and introduce us to the world of culture. And my dad got this idea that wine was part of the world of culture. So he started going into New York City after a long day of work and he took a wine seminar from one of the leading masters of wine of of the time. And he used to bring home wines when we were teenagers and he'd tell us about them and we'd get a little taste. I just thought it was kind of cool. Didn't think about it much until I was about 29 or 30 and my own business was taking off and all of a sudden I had some money and I thought, well, what do you do with money? Because I wasn't really motivated for the acquisition of, of material things, but I did think, oh, I could buy some wine. I started buying wine and I, actually, I met, I was lucky enough to meet Robert Parker, the great wine critic when he was just really starting out. He gave a talk at my local wine store And he said, I asked him what I should buy. He said, buy all the 1982 Bordeaux futures you can possibly get. And he seemed to be a credible guy, so I did it. And these turned out to be some of the greatest wines ever. And I benchmarked my taste at a very high level. (laughs) Yeah, right. But it was just so, it was, you know, and it was just, it was so wonderful. It was, and, and, and my dad was right. You know, these great wines, they're evocative of the place where they were vinified. So it's like taking a trip to France uh, and this one area in France and, or this place in Italy or this place uh, in Napa Valley. And if you then visit the vineyards, which I have now uh, done, the smells in the glass bring back memories of walking through that particular vineyard on a rainy day. It's, it's just a, a wonderful 
enriching experience. Plus, there's so much that goes into it. Uh, 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 the whole history of the world is tied into the evolution of the wine business. Having said that, uh, my business was doing seminars, uh, giving keynote speeches and doing seminars. And clients always ask me for some sort of team building event after the day of learning. So then I naturally just said, well, why don't we do a wine tasting? And I create a theme for them, Bordeaux versus California, for example. And we just taste and discuss and everybody loved it. And then uh, <laughs> in, uh, in the mid-90s, I had this amazing job. I was asked to co-direct a residential leadership academy for a global investment bank. And the client asked my co-director and I to bring in the most inspiring creative resources we could gather. So one of the people we invited was the poet laureate of Great Britain, Ted Hughes. And Ted would teach poetry to these investment bankers. And he did it in a way that was very similar to what we're talking about in the first part of our conversation. He did it by, he'd say, I'm going to give you a word and I want you to just write down as many words as you can think of. There are no wrong answers. In other words, he just had them go for quantity of ideas and let their minds get out of a habitual pattern. And then he'd have them turn those words into a poem. And it was, it was compelling. Having said that, I was getting to go out night after night, drinking fine wines, courtesy of our client, with the Poet Laureate. And my natural curiosity, I'm asking, what, what could make the poetry class even more fun and more effective? And I thought, what if we did the wine tasting before we wrote the poetry? And guess what happened to the poetry? <laughs> it just got so, it got way better. So this became uh, it's something I still do for groups all over the world. People say this is by far the best team building we've, we've ever done. Uh, we do chocolate tasting for people who don't drink wine for whatever reason. And they write this poetry. It's just, I mean, I do this for engineers. I do this for financial managers, physicians, uh, salespeople, you name it. And when people discover that they, you know, that person we were talking about in the beginning who thinks they're not creative? Yeah. Well, with just the right dose of fine wine and the right coaching and guidance and the right conviviality, that person writes a poem and wins a prize as chosen by that person's peers. And they discover that they're more creative than they ever knew they were. And then they hear their colleagues sharing this poetry that, I'm telling you, in many cases, it's it's either riotously funny or just so moving, people are in disbelief that it was there, you know, the, the guy from uh, the engineering department or the, the CFO who wrote that, that poem. So helping people discover that they're more creative than they thought they were in a way that is just wildly fun, that's this exercise that I evolved. And so I wrote a book about it. Uh, it came out in 2010 called Wine Drinking for Inspired Thinking, Uncork Your Creative Juices. And although the hardcover book itself is out of print, I'm, I'm working on a new edition. It is an audio book uh, that people can find if they click around from my website. Yeah, it's so cool. Is there a line though that, you know, they go from creative to drunk? <laughs> uh, not if, no, that's part of the beauty of... I've never seen anyone drunk in any one of these events ever. 
And I never get drunk. Guests at my house never do. We get drunk with uh, only metaphorically. Uh, yeah. Joy, with love, with inspiration, with creativity, but not with uh, brain toxins. No. Fine wine is the beverage of moderation. You don't say bottoms up when you're drinking fine wine. You don't knock back a six-pack of fine wine. It's fine. That means it has complexity. That means it has nuance. That means it's effectively art that you can drink. Even though beer commercials love to satirize this and pretend it's some sort of a feat, pathetic indulgence, they've got it wrong. It's actually part of the art of living. It's also really appetizing and goes perfectly with food. So, you know, people, I don't drink. I don't have a drink. If, if I meet you in the afternoon, I'll have tea. If I meet you before dinner, I'll have sparkling water. And then at dinner, I'm going to have wine because wine is part of, of dining and conviviality and culture. So when you're, when it's, in other words, when it's that good, you take your time and you're less likely to overdo it and you're enjoying it with the meal and with other people. So there's this, the edge goes off and the heart opens and the mind opens and then you float in that in that happy zone. And that's so that's my experience with it. Wow. I'm not going to change a word of that. That was freaking amazing. I love that. I'm just, you just painted a picture for me, man. I am going to go out tonight. I'm going to be a big shot tonight. I love that. I am running out of time with you. All right. So we're going to go into the rapid fire round because you're, you're definitely one of these guys that I can, if I wanted to, I could do 12 hours with you. So <laughs> let's just, let's just wrap up with some rapid fire uh, questions. Answer as quickly or as slowly as you'd like. It's basically a first thing that comes to mind round. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Humor, laughter. What's one of the things you're afraid of right now? You know, my answer is something to do with the state of the world and the the not being able to save our environment in time. What keeps you up at night? I the good news is lately I haven't been kept up at night. <laughs> Great. Great. What do people never ask you, but you wish they did? Uh, maybe that question. <laughs> I love that. It's the first time anybody ever said that one. What's the one thing that you want to get better at? Residing in a state of pure loving kindness and compassion. Mm. What book have you reread the most? A Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl probably the number one book that comes up with that question. And I think that's probably time for me to read it. What is your guilty pleasure? Well, you know, I'm, I'm really skilled at having pleasures without guilt. Hmm. Love that. What's the one thing that you own and probably should throw out, but you never will? You know, that, that's almost impossible to answer because... I've moved now four or five times. I keep getting rid of half my stuff every time I move and there keeps being too much stuff. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not really focused on the stuff. Uh, so I, it just, but it just seems to be here. So I, I, I can't, don't have a particular item. It's just all this stuff. I'm looking everywhere. I don't know. I have all these books, but I think I want to keep them. Uh, I'm in my, I'm in my office right now as I speak to you. So Yeah. 
Two more questions. What is, if you had to give a TED talk on nothing that you're known for, nothing that you've spoken about, and it can really be on anything that you like or anything you have a passion for, what would it be? Humor. Oh, love that. Last question. We're going to switch it up a little bit. What one question would you like to ask me? What was the real inner motivation for you to immerse yourself in this path of talking to people like me? (laughs) Well, because I am a student of learning, this is a no BS answer. I am absolutely fascinated by it because there are things that you can learn from somebody that can just shave so much time off your life and really give you a deep level of fulfillment if if you're willing to be open. For example, there are two things that are now bouncing around my subconscious right now, which is writing a hundred questions because I'm fascinated to see once I burn through the habitual patterns, what's going to emerge. And I believe that I'm going to be better for it. And the other thing is tonight when I order a bottle of wine and I go out to dinner, I'm going to be thinking about walking through the vineyard and imagining the taste that are in the glass and you know, visualizing myself in the vineyard and, you know, what that's like. And I want to train my palate. And I know that that's going to open up new conversation. I know when the edge comes off, more creativity will come in, which will probably facilitate deeper conversation with the people that I'm with. So to answer the question, you know, just getting the opportunity to spend an hour with somebody of your stature to teach me as well as teach the listeners is something I couldn't even pay for. So um, that's how I'd answer it. Well, that's so cool. Thank you for sharing that. Because what it is, there is, as you were saying that, the distinction between you and me disappeared because what all that's really happening is the what you just articulated. It is that stream, that energy of knowing, of understanding, of enrichment of fulfillment. It's the same, you know, it's the energy that pushes the plant up through the concrete, up towards the sun. So we're just these plants and we feel the the warmth of the sun and we're just moving in that direction together. Well, man, I've done a lot of these and this is one of my favorites. So thank you. I know you are a busy man and I know it's at the recording of this uh, podcast, it's the holidays. Um, and I'm just incredibly grateful that you were as open, as, as fun, and as giving of your time, um, especially at this time of year. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. 